Hello there. You are listening to the MCC Sunday Sermon. We are so glad you could join us. We pray that this message will encourage you, build your faith on your journey with God. Enjoy. But we've started this series, as Graham pointed out, and we're into week number two. We started last week, for those of you who missed it, but we defined worship this way. That worship is a whole person experience that's focused entirely on God, but that changes us. That's what worship is. That the Bible has a lot to say on the subject of worship, but trying to simplify what worship is, worship is a whole person experience. It's not just my words, it's my whole life. It's not just my actions, it's my thoughts as well. It's a whole person experience. To worship God is to really say, Lord, I'm withholding nothing from you. Today, as Jess led us in worship, said, why don't you lift your hands as a sign of surrender, as a reminder to, to who it is we are directing our praise. He is the most high God. And when I worship, I, I leave nothing in reserve. That it is a whole person experience. But that it's a whole person experience focused entirely on God. After all, worship God is worthy of it, that the word worship means worth-ship, that God is worthy of all of my praise and all of my honor. And that's why we exalt him and that's why we magnify him because it's a whole person experience that's focused entirely on God. But here's the truth that changes us. It's not so much that God needs our worship. It's that we need to worship. Isn't that true? Haven't you found in your life, as I've found in mine, that most often, the times that you least feel like praying, they're generally the times that you most need to. Sometimes you only realize that in hindsight. The times that you most, the times that you least feel like worshiping are generally the times that you most need to. And so God doesn't need our worship because he's insecure and he requires our worship to be able to fill some sort of void of confidence in him. No, no, no. God doesn't need our worship as much as we need to be able to worship. It's not so much that our worship changes God in any way. It's actually that our worship has this way of changing us. So we define worship this way, a whole person experience that's focused entirely on God, but that changes us. One of my convictions for, for MCC as a church is that we would be a church that is passionate about the presence of God. But we'd be a church that's hungry when it comes to the word of God, and that we'd be passionate when it comes to the presence of God. And that is why we value worship. It isn't about music. It isn't about us becoming contemporary. It isn't about cultural awareness. It isn't about presentation or production. It isn't about being cool, hip, or with it. It isn't about misty-eyed intimacy. People are laughing, and if you're here for the first time, you're like, why are they laughing about that? It's because last week I tried to be hip, hip cool, and with it. Um, It isn't about misty-eyed intimacy with God. It isn't about ritual or or religion or ordinance. It's actually about the formation of grateful hearts in the presence of God. Why do we value worship? Because it's about becoming more aware of God than of ourselves, of our circumstances, or of anything else. Why do we value worship? Because it's about the shaping of disciples who know God through being with God. And because it's about the transforming work that the Holy Spirit achieves when heartfelt and God-glorifying worship occurs. And so over these three weeks, and we're into week number two now, we're looking at the purpose of our worship. Today, we're looking at the power of our worship. And next week, we'll conclude by looking at the passion of our worship. 
But this morning, we're focusing in on the power of worship. And I want to take us this morning to to three passages in Scripture that kind of highlight and underline the power of worship. Here's the first of those. It's in Job chapter 38, beginning in verse number 4. For those of you who are new to the Bible, the book of Job is actually the oldest book in the, in the Old Testament. That, that Job's life is, well, it, he's facing some obstacles. His whole life, as he knows it, is pretty much destroyed. His kids die. Everything he has is lost. His own wife says to him, Job, you ought to just curse God and die because you've got no hope left. And Job finds himself in the most difficult of circumstances, and he finds himself questioning God. And and this is is good for us, right? Because there are times, maybe not as extreme as Job's case, where where we find ourselves asking questions of why things happen and find ourselves in difficult circumstances, and, and we begin to question God. And I love that the God of the Bible is not afraid of our questioning. Right? He's not afraid for us to ask the questions that are deep down in our own soul. It doesn't scare him for us to be honest. And so Job, in a moment of honesty, is having this conversation with God, asking why has all of this happened? He's really lamenting what has gone on in his life. And God says to him, look, I'll answer your questions, but first, I need you to answer a couple of mine. And so Job chapter 38 and verse 4, this is God speaking. He says, where were you, Job, when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On on what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone? Verse 7, this is what I want you to see. While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. In this conversation with Job, we get an insight into God creating the universe. That's recorded in the very start of the Bible in Genesis. But here, we get an insight from God about what was happening in those moments as God created and the universe sprawled out as he spoke it into being. And it highlights us for this, that worship is powerful because worship accompanies the creative power of God. That actually here in Job, literally what God says is, is who... Who stretched out the universe? Job? Surely you know, because you've got a lot of questions. Like, like, who was there when when, when I said to the the rivers and to the streams, you can come this far but no further? When I said to the stars, this is the place where you are to be in the universe. Surely you know, Job, right? Because you were there, right? God's pointing out that, that he's sovereign over all, that it was him who stretched out the universe, that as he spoke, let there be light, there was light. And he gives us this insight that while creation was happening, the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. What God is pointing out is that when he created the universe, he was doing so with a soundtrack. That the background music to God's creativity was the worship. Even the stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy. That God was starting to feel a bit creative. And so he said to the angels, guys, I want it in E minor. Come on, you do things to music, don't you? Come on, we do all sorts of things to music, right? With Spotify, there's different playlists that we can have, right? And so there's like dinner with friends. So you don't have to think about what music to play. You just play the music with friends playlist when you have friends over, right? There's like a running playlist and you get it at different beats per minute for how fast you go. I've got like a very slow beats per minute one that I, that I use, right? There's, there's different music that we use for different things, right? God has a playlist for his creative power. 
And it's the sound of the stars singing and the angels shouting for joy. That when God created, there was worship playing because worship accompanies the creative power of God. What an insight into God and his power. In the the book series, The Chronicles of Narnia, which were written by C.S. Lewis, a great and fascinating allegory of books, kids' books. In the very first book, The Magician's Nephew, when Narnia comes into being, when it's being created, this is C.S. Lewis's take in this fictional story at what creation might have been like. And so Aslan, who's a picture of Jesus himself, Aslan comes into a place where there's nothing and he begins to sing Narnia into being. That C.S. Lewis uses that as a picture for the creation of Narnia because he's pointing to actually what the Bible says about creation when God put the whole universe together, that he was doing so with a soundtrack in the background. It was to the sound of worship that God created. And so C.S. Lewis, in the depiction of the Narnia series, has Aslan sing Narnia into being. There's a link between the power of God and our worship. Think about this, that when God is framing the universe with his words, worship is happening at exactly the same time. That that God uses his mouth, doesn't he? He says, let there be light and light appears. That God speaks creation into being. And you and I, created in the image of God, have that same ability, that in the same way God framed the world with his words, that you and I have the opportunity to be able to frame our world with our words as well. But by simply monitoring what leaves our lips and our worship is a massive part of what frames our world. Why? Because whatever you sing about, you eventually bring about. You can go through lots of examples of this in the Old Testament, right? But where when Israel went into battle, but when they were facing insurmountable odds, when they were facing difficulty and they needed God to show himself real and strong in their lives, that they did so not with their own might. No, they understood enough to realize that in our might, we don't have enough, but we need the might of God. And so they would lead with worship. Think about when Israel crossed the Jordan River and the very first place they come to is Jericho. It's the largest and the most fortified city of the 32 places that they'll take in the promised land. That God is making a statement with the very first place. And so in Jericho, God says to them, here's what I want you to do. I want you to march around the city each day, once each day. And on the seventh day, I want you to march around seven times. And then when Joshua gives the call, then I want you to shout. And you remember the story, right? That's exactly what they do. They march around the city. And on the seventh day, they march around seven times. And when they shout, the walls of Jericho come falling down. The most fortified structure in the ancient Near East. An impenetrable wall that historians say was so big and so broad that there's historical accounts that the people of Jericho raced chariots two by two on the top of the wall. And yet at the shout, the walls came down. What's interesting is that when God gives them the instructions for marching around, he gives them very specific instructions about how to do it and who's to do it. That actually what God asks them to do is to put the worshippers at the front. It's the priests who are at the front leading this procession. They're not coming with the soldiers at the front. They're not coming with people with swords drawn at the front. They're not doing this in their might. They're going to do this in the might of God, and they're going to make that obvious because they're going to go with worship first. 
That, that if you were the soldiers of Jericho standing on the top of the hill, standing on the top of the wall, you'd seen people come and attempt to try and take down this city before, right? And as you watched the people of Israel march around the walls of Jericho, this is all you would hear is only the sound of worship for seven days because they did not speak another word. It was just the sound of worship that led them around the walls of Jericho. Why? Because there is this connection, isn't there? But between our worship and the creative power of God. In Isaiah 54, God says, Sing, O barren woman, you who have never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who have never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. If you ever struggled to be able to have children, then you know the last thing somebody who's struggling to have children wants to do is to be able to sing about it. And yet God says, sing, O barren woman. Why? Because whatever you sing about, you bring about, you begin to partner with the creative power of God. Because when God hears worship, it's a reminder to him that actually the last time I was doing this, yeah, I was, I was creating, Right? And so God says to sing, O barren woman, you who've never bore a child. If the scripture said to cry, O barren woman, that would make sense. If the scripture said to be in dismay, O barren woman, that would make sense. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says to sing, O barren woman. Why? Because even though it might be the last thing that you want to do, it's actually what comes from our mouth, our worship, that partners with the creative power of God And so whenever you find yourself in the place of needing a miracle, for things unimaginable, for things that that require God's creative working, the encouragement of the scripture is when you find yourself in that place, begin to sing, begin to worship, begin to exalt God, begin to magnify him, begin to remind yourself again of how awesome and mighty and powerful he is, that when God created the universe, he did it to a backing track of worship. And so worship accompanies the creative power of God. But here's the second thing. Worship leads to victory in battle. Come on, there's lots of examples that we could use in Scripture about the power of worship and how our worship partners with God. But perhaps the most well-known story about a decisive battle won through the power of worship is actually found in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It holds this lesson about worship and warfare being together. That that worship, even, and you understand worship is broader than just us singing, right? It's broader than that. But even if you just narrow it down to that, that that worship is more than just the the, the prelude to the message on a Sunday, right? That that worship is more than just the warm-up part for us to to get ready, right? That, That worship holds far more significance than that, whether it be corporately or individually. That this holds this lesson in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 about worship and warfare together. And so to put you in the picture, what's happening in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 is that a vast army is headed towards King Jehoshaphat, army, kingdom of Judah. The Moabites have amassed their army. The Amorites have amassed their army. The Meoites have amassed their army. The Vegemites, there's just, there's lots of ites that are all coming. They're all coming together. And they're coming to be able to wage war against Israel. They're wanting to wipe God's people off the planet. They're wanting to make a statement. And so facing this, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and verse 3, this is what the Bible says, alarmed. You would be alarmed. 
right? When you receive word, hey, there's armies marching against us. Their plan is to try and wipe us off the face of the earth. The Bible says, Alarm, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. That's really interesting. That facing a really difficult prospect, to facing some of the worst circumstances of his life, Jehoshaphat realizes, I can either try and face them in my strength or I can inquire of God. Do you know what? Before we do anything else, we're going to fast and seek the Lord. Inquire of the Lord, he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. Verse 4, the people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord indeed, and they came from every town in Judah to seek him. I love that. That Jehoshaphat realizes this is a serious situation. And this has real consequences. But he also realizes that there's a spiritual dynamic at work and that this is a spiritual battle. And so the first thing he does is to fast and seek God. That's actually his first response not his last resort. That's an encouragement to us, right? Because I know that you're much better at this than I am, but, but I've found myself at different times coming to God once I've tried everything else I know how to do. I know it's not just me, guys. But Jehoshaphat realizes that, that I can't do this in my strength because my strength won't be enough for this. This is a spiritual battle. These people are trying to make a claim about us and our God. And so, and so I'm going to fast in fact, we're all going to do it together and we're going to seek God, not as our last resort, but as our first response. Come on, you and I face things in our life. And some of them are just the consequences of poor decision making. That's true. But sometimes it's more than that. Sometimes it's a spiritual battle at play. Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul says, yeah, sometimes we need more miracles because we exercise less wisdom. That's true. If we exercise more wisdom, we'd probably need a few less miracles. Sometimes that's true. But sometimes there's also circumstances outside of our control. And we've got to recognize that there is a spiritual dynamic to us. There's a spiritual dynamic to our lives. And so as the story continues in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, picking up in verse 14, after they've fasted and they've spent time seeking God, the scripture says, then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehazel, who was a recognized prophet. And he said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. What an encouraging thing when God reminds you the battle is not yours. It belongs to me. And tomorrow, march against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge of the desert of Jural. And you um, will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance of the, the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. What an encouraging word that would be. Verse 18, Jehoshaphat bowed down. This is his response. The prophet speaks and Jehoshaphat is like, that's what we've been waiting to hear. That's the reason why we fasted. That's the reason why we've been seeking God. Verse 18, Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some of the Levites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Verse 21, 
After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army singing, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Notice this, right? This is a really difficult situation. It's the worst situation of Jehoshaphat's life. And he realizes there's more going on here than what meets the eye. And so he says, do you know what? Before we do anything else, we're going to fast and we're going to pray and we're going to seek God. And when they fast and they pray and they seek God, have a guess what? God speaks to them. And having spoken to them, what is the first response? It's to bow down and to worship. And then Jehoshaphat is really clear about this. When we go out tomorrow, the battle doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Lord. So in recognition of the fact that this battle is not ours, we're not, we're not reaching for our swords. We're reaching for our voices. We're not reaching for our bows and arrows, right? We're reaching for upstretched hands. We're reaching for, for the shouts of joy that accompany those that worship God. And so he said, after consoling the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army singing, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Verse 22, as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Sir, who were invading Judah and they were defeated. Literally, they don't even have to unsheath a sword. God causes there to be ambush and confusion amongst the enemy, so much so that all these different kingdoms that are coming and rising against God's people end up killing each other. And all that the people of God are doing is worshipping. All they're doing is praising God. All they're singing is give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. That's not a mystical story. That, that's not simply a made-up story that has some life lessons for it. That's an account of something that actually really did happen for a nation of people. And what was true for them is also true for us. That there is this connection between the power of our worship and warfare. That, that, that our worship releases God to be at work in the midst of our situation. Can you and I see ourselves in this story? That the enemy comes marching in on our life circumstance and says, it's over. I've got you surrounded. There's no hope for you. And so maybe that looks like a terminal diagnosis. That the enemy says, I'm coming for you, right? You're surrounded, right? It's all over. That maybe there's a child that's gone completely off the rails. Maybe there's a negative forecast for your job or for your business, Maybe there's the, the threat of an ultimatum in a troubled marriage and all of those circumstances rear their heads to be able to say, I'm going to put you in your place. And in the midst of that circumstance and difficulty, when our first response is to say, do you know what? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Then actually, there's a spiritual dynamic to my life that's not lost on me. And so, God, rather than coming to you last, I'm going to come to you first. Do you know what? I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. I'm going to seek you. And then with your answer, I'm going to, I'm going to praise. I'm going to worship. I'm going to do my part because my part in this is really small. It's to be reminded that the battle is not mine. It belongs to the Lord. And so Jehoshaphat confronted a physical reality with a spiritual solution. He fasted and he worshiped and God responded. But this story ends in, in the end of that chapter this way. Verse 29, the fear of God came upon all the surrounding kingdoms when they heard how God had fought against the enemies of Israel. 
and the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God had given him rest on every side. What a great conclusion to that story. That actually Jehoshaphat didn't even need to unsheath a sword. And yet as they worshipped and as they praised God, God wrought an incredible miracle. And God gave him rest on every side. Can I tell you, if there's restlessness in your soul, if there's restlessness with the present circumstances that you're finding, rather than going to God last, why don't you begin to lift up your voice and begin to come to God first? Because worship leads to victory in battle. Here's the third one this morning. That worship brings release from bondage. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are imprisoned in Philippi. They're imprisoned actually because as they're going through trying to establish a church, which will actually be the the, the beachhead, it'll, it'll be the point for the gospel to go into Europe. This is a really significant moment in the, in the gospel spreading throughout the known world. As they're walking around in the city, they're being followed by this girl who's tormented by evil spirits. And she's quite valuable to her, to her owners. She's a slave and she's owned by men who actually use the tormenting demons who help her to tell the future and fortune tell, and they've made money off her situation. She's walking around behind them and everywhere they go, she keeps on declaring, these are men of God. So eventually Paul's had enough. and He's like, far out, this is enough. And so out of frustration, right, because sometimes that happens, out of frustration, he says, he delivers her of, of the demons. Well, they get really, really upset. And so Paul and Silas are thrown into prison because they're disrupting the local businesses. And so they find themselves in prison. And in verse 25, this is what the Bible says, Acts chapter 16. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Can you imagine what that moment was like? Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. And the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell upon, fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds and immediately he and all his household were baptized. That Paul and Silas find themselves in prison, not because they've been doing the wrong thing, but because they've been doing the right thing. They're in prison because they've been serving God. And if anybody ever had an excuse to be able to get a little bit ticked off at God, it's Paul and Silas. I mean, God, we're doing your bidding here. We were trying to spread the gospel throughout the known world. We delivered a girl of demonic oppression. And this is our just desserts. We we get sent to prison. This is not what they advertised in the Bible College brochure when they said, come and serve God. If anybody could have been frustrated, it's Paul and Silas. They're serving God and serving God lands them in prison. And it's not one of those nice prisons. It's a first century Roman prison. There's nothing nice about it. So here they are in the depths of the prison, chained up with, with their feet in stocks, little rats running around. It gets to midnight. It's freezing cold. And Silas turns to Paul and says, hey, Paul, feel like singing? 
Paul's like, Silas, shut up. This is not a time for that. But Paulie, you know the song. Uh mate. Silas, if you keep on singing, I'm going to take this foot out of my stock and I'm going to kick you with it. I don't know actually how it played out. But in my mind, it's kind of comical that way. The Paul and Silas find themselves in the midst of a prison because they've been serving God. And at about midnight, with nothing else to be able to do, with no other way to be able to move their position forward, they begin to pray and sing hymns to God and the other prisoners are listening. And that as they begin to worship, for the very first time, there's been earthquakes before, but every other earthquake has happened under the ground. The epicenter for this earthquake was right above the ground. It was coming out of a jail cell where worship was being proclaimed about God. And the prison was shaken, so much so that all of the doors burst open. That where there had been bondage, now there was freedom. And the prison doors blew open. And what's interesting is that all the prison doors, not just Paul and Silas's, Every prison door opens. That's kind of interesting. And what's even more interesting is that when the prison doors open, the other prisoners, for the first time in their sentence, have a chance to be able to run. It's midnight, it's pitch black down there, and all the doors are open. If you're trying to make a getaway, this is like the perfect timing, right? Like Ocean's Eleven has nothing on this moment right now. And yet they don't leave. There must have been something so captivating about Paul and Silas worshipping and singing hymns to God that that meant even at the opportunity to be able to leave and escape, they, they couldn't go. That they were compelled to see how this story ends. There was something so captivating about this worship. That the song of worship did far more than just swing open prison gates, right? That it shook the powers of darkness in that place. That it saw an entire family come to salvation. The jailer and his whole household was saved that very night and baptized. That it marked the start of the Philippian church. That the book, right, of Philippians is written to the church that's actually birthed from this moment in history. That that a whole city was affected as a result of two men who worshipped God at midnight. That a whole continent was affected because this was the first expansion of the gospel into Europe. And so Paul and Silas had obstacles, and I'm sure they probably didn't feel like worshipping in that prison cell at midnight, and yet worship was the key to breakthrough, not just for their own lives, but for every other person in earshot of them singing those hymns to God. There's something liberating about worship. There's something freeing about worship. That my prayer for us, that we be a church that that values the presence of God, that's passionate about the presence of God, that values worship. Why? Because there is freedom and there is joy that comes into a person's relationship with God when they begin to lift up their eyes. And maybe you've had church experience before and maybe you grew up in a church and your experience of church was that it was a whole list of rules. And you left church feeling smaller than when you'd arrived. And someone wielded their finger like religion in your face. But the Christian message is not a message of trying to pull your socks up or trying to do better or try harder or exert more self-willpower. The Christian message is not a self-help program taught by a moral teacher 2,000 years ago. No, no, no. The Christian message is a message where God wasn't waiting for us to make our way to Him. He made His way to us. It's not about us trying to pull our socks up. It's about lifting our head up. It's not about all the things that we need to do, 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 right? Come on, you know what I'm about to say next, right? Because if there's a whole list of do, 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 that's what religion gives. And before you know it, 
you'll be up to your neck in doo-doo. The Christian message isn't about do's. It's about what he's already done. When Jesus said on the cross, it's finished, it's because it's already done. That God doesn't accept you because you're good. He accepts you because he is. And when you realize that, you realize how liberating worship is because worship is a reminder to us again that this life is not about trying to lift and pull our socks up. It's actually about lifting our head up. It's about beholding God in all of his might and power and goodness. There's something liberating about worship that in worship we are caught up in the presence of God. And so worship accompanies the creative power of God. Worship leads to victory in battle and worship brings release from bondage. As the worship team comes back this morning and we're going to have some time to be able to worship. I heard you this morning that there is power in our worship. Not in an abracadabra way, but in a beholding the goodness of God and his reality kind of way. There's power in our worship that right back at the foundation of creation, God is creating and the soundtrack to his creation is the angels shouting for joy and the stars beginning to sing. That when worship begins to happen, when we begin to lift up our hearts and lift up our voices and lift up our hands and be reminded we are worshiping the God who laid the foundations of the earth that that worship accompanies the creative power of God, it always has. That that our worship has power because in our worship we join with God in partnership. And in that partnership, it's kind of fair on us and unfair on him because our part in the partnership is really, really tiny, but God's part is really big because it's in our worship that we're reminded that this battle is not mine. It belongs to the Lord. And so before I do another thing, I'm going to spend time seeking God. I'm going to lift up my hands and be reminded that I'm not coming to you in my might or in my power. I'm coming to you in the power of God, that there is power in our worship. That, That in some ways, worship is a lot like those schoolyard fights that you had. Do you remember the schoolyard fights? Come on, some of you really remember the schoolyard fights. I, yeah, I know. It was a long time ago. They were still using slates and stuff like that in schools. And they had to crawl over broken glass to get there. And no one washed it. But, but remember schoolyard fights? That, that when the fight is just about beginning to start and people are starting to get around and it's like, fight, fight, fight. That at some point in the altercation, if you realize you were the smaller kid, at some point someone would say something like, yeah, yeah, well, 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 my brother's huge and he'll beat you up, which is really an acknowledgement that I actually think I'm going to lose this fight. And so, and so I'm not going to come to you in my might. I'm going to come to you in, in someone that's bigger than me. And so, you know, like my brother, like he's, he's massive and, and he'll punch your face in. That, that worship is a reminder to us that, that actually we don't come in our own might. The battle belongs to the Lord. And so I can step back and say, oh, you think you're big cancer. I know someone who's bigger. I might not be that big, but he's enormous. He was there when the foundations of the earth were laid. He was the one doing the laying. And that worship brings release from bondage. We're catching up with um, Brad and Haley Law recently. They've, they've been a part of the church about since the start of the year. And in the conversation as we're getting to know each other, we're asking about, like, how did you, how'd you first become a Christian? And Haley will tell this story better than me, but to fill you in on this story, Haley said, oh, I was... 18, 19, I got invited along to a youth camp. And uh, 
I didn't really realize it was going to be like a Christian youth camp. But over the course of the, the couple of days, I realized this is supposed to be a Christian youth camp. I thought we were going to the beach to go surfing. And, and she said, I, I, I found myself lost one night. It's kind of poetic. I found myself lost one night trying to get back from the beach back to where the camp was. It was close by, but I'd, I'd gotten lost. And I came to this part in the path where there was this fork in the road. And it was a natural thing. It was, there was actually a fork in the road, like either path would lead somewhere. Only one of those paths led back to the camp. And she said, I took this path. It was like this decisive moment because what was actually happening for me trying to find my way back was actually something that was happening on a much bigger scale than that for my own life. So I took the path back and I came back into where the camp was and, and there was all these people gathered and there was a guy at the front playing piano and I'd never seen anything like it before. She said, I've been around musicians and bands. Haley was signed to Sony Music when she was 19. She'd been around people performing before. She'd seen some of the best performers. But she said there was a guy sitting behind a piano and it was so captivating, I'd never seen anything like it before. It was like he knew the person he was singing the songs to. And I'd been around performers and I'd seen great performance before and I'd heard incredible musicians and singers but there was something about this that was so captivating because it was like he knew God. My prayer for people would be that in your life and mine, they would see that relationship. I'm not talking about on Sunday. It should definitely be here on Sunday. When people walk in, they would say, do you know what? There's something about these guys. It's It's not just like they know about God. It's like they actually know him. It's like they're singing to someone they personally have a relationship with. But that wouldn't just be true of our worship here. It'd be true of our whole lives in every place and at every time. People would say, man, there's something about you guys. It's, like, it's not just that you've got a whole list of things you believe. It's like you actually know him. When I talk about being a church that's passionate about the presence of God, that's what I'm talking about. A church full of people who know God, who've encountered his reality in their life, who their heartfelt response in recognition of that is to lift up hands and to lift up voices and to lift up hearts and and to bow our lives low to the God who's worthy of all praise and honor and glory. We know who it is that we're worshiping. We have a relationship with him. And so would you stand to your feet this morning? I've encouraged us this morning, but what I'd love for us to do as this service starts to come to an end is actually to give us an opportunity to be able to worship God. And I want to encourage you, maybe you've been a part of MCC, maybe you've been following Jesus for some time. I want to encourage you this morning that in the same way Paul and Silas, they began to worship God in a midnight hour in a prison. They didn't care who else was there or who else was listening. I want to encourage you to begin to worship. Not worry about who's next to you. Not worry about what other people, but begin to lift up and exalt God. Maybe you're here and maybe you've never worshipped God before. Can I tell you, you and I were created to worship God. That's why we have such an affinity. That's why, that's why we ask the kind of big questions of life. It's only humans who ask, who am I really? And what am I here for? There's never been a moment that your dog at home has sat down and thought, I know they call me Rover, but who am I really? Only you and I do that. Why? 
That because we're created in the image of God, we're created to worship. That's why there is this longing in our souls for something that's bigger than what we can see. Why? It's a longing for God. And so whether you've ever worshipped God or not, I want to encourage you as the team leads us in this song, the words are going to be on the screen and I want to encourage you just for a few minutes to get lost in God's presence and worship Him. Lord, this morning we come before you. God, today, God, with all the passion we can muster, God, with all the heartfelt desire, Lord, we can. We come before you and we worship you today. Be glorified and lifted up in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you once again for joining us. Feel free to contact us on our Facebook, our website, and jump on our Instagram at mcc.church. Also, make sure to rate and review as well as share. Finally, from all the team at MCC, have a blessed day. And until next time, bless you.